0: Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco
1: Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. Marshall Field once said, buying real estate is not only the best way, the quickest way, the safest way, but the only way to become wealthy. Marshall Field was an American entrepreneur who lived in the 1800s. His quote was obviously made in an era before tech stocks, hedge funds, and excess money printing by the Federal Reserve. However, the principle of owning real estate to become wealthy still holds true today. In fact, we can make a strong case that it is far more true today than it was back then. Real estate is arguably the best asset class if you want to build enormous wealth. And while you often hear about well-known real estate investors such as Donald Trump or even Sam Zell, there are countless more who are relatively unknown and very wealthy. What we're going to cover today are the seven powerful tools that these real estate tycoons were able to use to build legacy wealth from real estate. And while most of these tools apply to both real estate investors and homeowners, there are more benefits to owning real estate as an investor rather than a homeowner. So as we jump into that interview, I want to remind you of two quick things. First, if this resonates with you and everything we talk about on this show, by all means, contact one of our investment counselors and set up a free strategy session for yourself. That way you can discuss where you are today, where you want to go, what that would look like in terms of a roadmap or a plan of action and then breaking that into a criteria to follow that will make it super easy for you to identify the markets and properties that will meet your investment criteria. So again, that is just something we do virtually every day with real estate investors all around the country. And lastly, if you haven't already done so, of course, I say this almost every week, but please remember to subscribe, whether it's on Google Play or iTunes, just subscribe. And if you can, by all means, leave us a rating and review. We will certainly appreciate that. And with that, let's get to our interview. It's my pleasure to welcome Kirk Chisholm to the show. Kirk is a principal and wealth manager at Innovative Advisory Group, an independent registered investment advisor. He's located in Lexington, Massachusetts, and he's been providing financial advice to individuals and families since 1999. Kirk's influence and innovation has promoted change in many areas of wealth management and in the industry itself, Kirk was acknowledged as the number seven most influential financial advisor on Investopedia's Top 100. And with that, Kirk, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Marco. Well, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I don't really have um, registered investment advisors on the show all that often. So it's always interesting to hear other people's perspectives and, you know, a different part of the financial world. And we all need to learn about everything that we can, not just about real estate, but what is outside of this asset class. But you are an interesting person because you really like real estate. You are a real estate investor yourself. You obviously understand the benefits and the power of it and how it all ties in with other investment classes and investment strategies. So I want to start off by talking about a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, but also help my audience understand For those that don't, what a registered investment advisor is and what you guys do. Sure.
0: Yeah. So, registered investment advisor is probably not a term that many people have heard before. Our industry, wealth management industry, is kind of broken into two parts, really. One part is the broker dealer side. So, like the Morgan Stanleys, uh, Merrill Lynch, the UBS, you know, those are the broker dealers that people have probably heard of. And they're really, their role is to sell product they get paid commissions and they sell product. They might do other things, but that's essentially the simple version of, of what they do. The other side of the industry is the investment advisory side or the RAA side. And effectively what an RAA is, is an RAA is a fiduciary. So that means we have an extremely high standard of care in when we work with clients. And as a fiduciary, we have to put our clients' interest above our own. On the broker-dealer side, they don't have to. They have a, a know-your-client rule and they have some standards that aren't quite as stringent. But as an investment advisor, on top of being a fiduciary, you know we don't get paid commissions. We're 100% transparency and unbiased in everything that we do. So I've spent some time on the BD side and it is what it is. It's not something that's part of the way I like to do things. But you know, I like this side better because it just allows me to really kind of focus on my clients and making their lives better rather than just trying to sell product.
1: Right. Right. And you are a believer and an investor in real estate. So you kind of spread yourself across different types of asset classes and investments.
0: Yeah. So for me, it's interesting. I mean, we started our company back in 08 in and it was, uh, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, but our current iterations in 08. And one of the reasons we did it is we wanted to focus on non-traditional assets, things like real estate alternate investments, things that are outside of the stock market. And one of the reasons we did that is because there are so many great investments out there. I mean, I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of good people on the show, Marco, that are just really excellent real estate investors. And they probably have some really interesting strategies that most advisors can't access because they're focused on mutual funds. And back in 08, we saw kind of the writing on the wall and we wanted to see how we can take advantage of some of this cheap real estate that people were just offloading for a song. And within the other channels, people couldn't do that. Personally, I love real estate. It's one of my favorite asset classes for many reasons that we'll probably talk about today. But it's one of those investments that everybody understands at some level, right? I mean, you've either bought a house or you've rented a house or you've invested in real estate. Like... I think everybody has some exposure unless you're living you know, in a teepee in the woods. You probably know what real estate's all about. <laughs> so we wanted to really capitalize on that because a lot of our clients invest in real estate in a variety of capacities, and we just don't. We're agnostic. I'm agnostic to when, when we're working with clients. I don't care if you're in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, or horses, houses, and gold. As long as it's a good investment, that's really what's important to me. So you can make a bad investment in a public company... Let's say, for an example, Lehman Brothers, or you can make a good investment in real estate, you know, or vice versa, right? It's just totally dependent upon the investment itself. And
1: that's really what we focus on. Yeah, that's good to hear. Some investment advisors don't consider real estate an investment. They call it something like an alternative investment, quote unquote. So you consider real estate an investment. Does an investment have to produce income or cash flow to be an investment? Or Can an investment be something that is more speculative or based on capital appreciation or maybe precious metals that really just are, to me, more of a store of value? They don't actually generate monthly income or annual income or dividends or distributions or anything like that. So, yeah, that's actually a great question. So any
0: investment that we work with, you have to have a good starting strategy means you have to buy it right and you have to have an exit strategy in mind now your goal might be to buy real estate and hold it for a hundred years and just live off the income. You know, that's a strategy, or it might be you buy a piece of real estate cause you think there's going to be a new target is going to open up down the street. So you want to go for appreciation. Every strategy is different. Some people might buy it for tax benefits, you know, like some people buy oil and gas properties for the tax benefits. So there's no single right strategy. There's a lot of wrong strategies, but there's no single right one. It really depends on what your goal is. And it depends on what your whatever your goal is, as long as you're meeting it, that's what's important. So I personally have a preference. I think that if you're gonna buy real estate, it needs to be cash flowing. Because otherwise you're just speculating. And real estate's really expensive to speculate. You know, the risks are higher, it's illiquid. There's you know, you can speculate in a stock, but you can get in and out in a day and it costs you five dollars each way. Real estate, it costs you six percent. So Personally, if I'm going to buy real estate, I want it to be cash flowing.
1: That's my preference. Yeah, I agree with you. Far less liquid, slower moving asset class, has other types of risk. Although one thing real estate doesn't have is counterparty risk. When you're a direct owner, you eliminate the counterparty risk. And that is something that's nearly impossible to get rid of if you're investing in equities or the stock market.
0: Yeah, that's very true. I mean, technically, there's always counterparty risk, but it's so infinitesimally small in real estate that it's almost not worth considering. It's like saying US Treasuries are technically considered a risk-free rate, as they call them, or you could actually say if you buy it from the treasury and it matures, you can guarantee that they won't lose money. Well, technically they can, but the risk is so infinitesimally small, the US government defaulting on their debt that it, you know, it's not worth considering. But real estate is, as you said, Marco, it's really low risk if you're doing your homework. Because you can touch it, you can feel it, you know you know what you own, you can go to the registry, you can see that you own it. Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, AIG, you had no idea what you're investing in. I mean, you look at GE as an example, and I don't want to bring out individual companies, but the company is so complicated, it's really hard to figure out what's going where. I mean, I've talked to analysts and... He's not the only one. There's a lot of companies that are this size, but they get to such a big size that it's hard to really go through the financials and understand where all the money's flowing because it's just, you know, as you said earlier, it's all paper. But real estate, you know, if you want to put it on a new roof, you put it on a new roof. If you don't, you don't. It's totally up to you. So I agree with you. The risks are a lot less in some ways with real estate.
1: Sure. So let me ask you a question that I rarely even bring up on this show. And I'm going to ask you this before we get into the powerful benefits of owning real estate, what you refer to as the powerful tools that create legacy wealth from real estate. Obviously, there are pros and cons to renting versus buying and vice versa. And I think a lot of that has to do with where you actually live because all markets are different and affordability and price points change. But I read in one of your articles that you say paying rent is not really throwing money away. And I think I know what you mean by this, but I'm going to ask you the question, what do you mean by renting is not really throwing money away? So
0: I guess my opinion on this concept that I think most people don't understand, it's not because they can't, it's because that, I guess, as our society at large, we've kind of brainwashed ourselves to believe certain things. One of them is that owning real estate is an investment. So, for people who are young, starting a family and saying, Oh, I need to buy a property because I need to invest, right? Well, buying property as an investment is an investment. Buying property to live in is not an investment, it's a personal expense. So, I've done the math, I've written a, a few articles about this concept. You know, it really just comes down to running numbers, which I don't think people do, generally speaking. They just say, Oh, I need to own. It's a good investment, it'll appreciate. But actually, run the numbers. If you're living there and you're not paying rent to anybody, you're paying rent to yourself. So you're not actually investing. You're just you're just paying rent. You have to pay it somewhere. Whereas if you're renting, you don't have a lot of the the liabilities. You don't have to deal with the capital expenditures. You can move anytime you want. Like there's different reasons to buy versus rent. The reason I kind of wrote about it is because I want to challenge people to think outside the box. Like, you don't have to own a home. Like I know people that actually rent their primary property and they own a huge real estate portfolio because they don't want to have to deal with, you know, it's I guess the carpenter with the leaky roof, but just sometimes the numbers make sense to rent. Sometimes it makes sense to own. I mean, when we did the math a number of years ago, it made more sense for in our area, anything above 750000 in property value, it made sense to rent. Anything below that, it made sense to own just because of how the numbers ran, those are basically the lines where they were. And I mean, we could have found multi-million dollar properties for like four grand a month or something. Like It was absurd. But I think the point is you have to actually do the research. Like, There's no silver bullet. There's no right or wrong answer. But I think people need to understand that investing in your own property that you live in is is a personal expense. And they
1: just have to understand the concept and why that makes sense. Right, right. Well said. Yeah. And I agree with you. We have clients here in California and many other expensive markets where it's actually cheaper for them to rent. They get more house, more square footage for the same dollar. So they're actually further ahead renting. But what's cool about that is what they would have put down as a down payment towards a larger expensive home here in Southern California or even Northern California that can go a long way in terms of down payments on cash flowing investment properties in the Midwest, the Southeast, wherever it may be. And so they could quite literally create enough positive cash flow from their rentals using that down payment money, which is now investment capital, to cover their living expenses here in California or wherever they live. So you nailed it when you said you just have to run the numbers. If you sit down and pencil out scenario A versus scenario B, Scenario B might make a lot more sense where you rent and own a large portfolio of real estate and you just live off the income, or at least it contributes to your lifestyle.
0: Yeah. I think the key is, and this is something we kind of push for everybody with any topic is you always have to challenge your assumptions. You know, you, you can't make blanket assumptions that things are always going to be this way. It's kind of like what happened in 2008. Oh, real estate always goes up. I mean, that's why that happened because people made the assumption that real estate always goes up. And that's just one of many assumptions that people make. But I think anytime you're putting a lot of money on the line, right? The homes aren't cheap, especially, especially where you live, Marco. I mean, they're not cheap here either. But if you're going to put that much money down, you need to really do your homework and challenge the assumptions in any which way. And I think you'd be surprised you know, if you kind of think about it. I mean, granted... Certainly mentioning to my wife that maybe we should rent for his own, she kind of her eyes rolled back in her head because I think we all have this assumption like owning real estate means you're successful. And I think it's just keep up with the Joneses mentality that there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, we all have our own opinions of things, but I think at the end of the day, if you're talking about dollars and cents, dollars and cents is really easy. That's what spreadsheets are for. The emotional part of the decision is a different decision entirely. And it may be more or less important But, you know, you can't combine the two. You need to make two independent decisions.
1: Well, a lot of people are brought to the belief that owning your home is the American dream. And it really isn't. For a lot of people, it's the American nightmare. They don't want to own a home. They want to be untethered and they want to be able to be mobile and live where they want. And they change careers and move around a lot. So it really just depends on what you want and need as a person or as a family. So you're right. It's not certainly not an investment, it's an expense, and it doesn't always make financial sense to own versus rent and invest elsewhere. Well, to accentuate the point that you mentioned the, the owning a home is the American dream, you know where that started? I'm guessing the 1920s with some sort of tax law that came into play? Uh, no, I can't confirm this, but
0: I've had enough people tell me this that I think it was Fannie Mae who started it as the marketing campaign. So it was a marketing campaign to get people to buy more homes. That's where it started. Now, why am I not surprised by that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course.
0: I'd I'd be less surprised if it was like Goldman Sachs marketing it,
1: you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or Lehman Brothers, and they're no longer here. Or Lehman Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Well, I'm not surprised by that. So, very interesting. So, that's a good segue. Let's talk about these powerful tools to create legacy wealth. So, there are many powerful benefits to owning real estate, as we all know, and specifically with investment real estate. Now, you've referred to them as tools, but let's go over them or at least highlight them and the benefits of them. There's seven. And I actually sorted these logically, at least in my mind, logically. And the first one is something we've already been talking about. And to me, it's number one, cash flow is king. So number one is cash flow. Can you maybe highlight or expand upon that first benefit?
0: Yeah. So cash flow, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but really when you're buying real estate, you're basically buying a business. So I know people look at real estate as different. I don't. In many ways, like owning real estate is like buying a business. You know, there's cash flow, there's expenses, there's income. You know, you've got to balance it all, but ultimately you're buying it for cash flow. You know, you're putting it down, whatever, let's say 200,000 and you're trying to get, uh, let's say a 10 cap where you're trying to get, you know, let's say, you know, 20 grand in rent. And I mean, let's say at the end of the day, you're netting 5% from that. That's something that you can predict, right? So, there'll always be things you can't predict. You can't predict whether the renter is going to be a bad renter and they're going to try to not pay rent for a number of months. You can't predict a tornado going through your neighborhood. Like, there's certain things you can't predict. But for as much as you can predict with real estate, cash flow is the most predictable thing that you can find. And so, you know, going in, what your cash flow is going to be before you even buy the property. I mean, think about it it's like buying a CD. You buy a CD, you know you're going to get 3%. Nothing else is going to happen. At the end, you get your 3% interest, right? Buying real estate, if you do it right, you know what you're going to get. Now, there's going to be variability in there. But generally speaking, you can count on that that 5% income every single year. So cash flow is hugely important because if you're not getting cash flow, then
1: I go back to what I said earlier, you're speculating. So cash flow is really, really important. I agree. That's a, that's a great point. And I like to refer to cash flow as the glue that holds your deal together because you're going to get the tax benefits over time. You're going to get appreciation over time. You get all these benefits. But if your property, like you called it a business, isn't carrying itself, isn't holding itself together to get you through each month and every year to give you these other benefits over time, then it's really not a business. It's just nothing more than a liability. So I like to call cash flow glue. So cash flow is powerful. And I love the way you just described the whole thing about cash flow. Great segue to asset appreciation, which is something that a lot of people kind of hang their hat on. They think that, okay, I'm buying real estate because it's going to make me wealthy through the appreciation. And it doesn't actually work that way. And we're going to talk about the effects of inflation here in a minute, but why don't you just quickly highlight asset appreciation and why people invest in real estate for it? So
0: asset appreciation is something you cannot predict. So the, just like we talked about with cash flow, that's very predictable, right? You know what you're going to get before you go in. Appreciation, you have no idea. You can speculate, you can assume, you know, hey, I know there's, you know, our demographics of our city are expanding and this town most likely be the next area expands to, great. Or I'm buying this property at a discount. I know I can get appreciation off it. That's wonderful. If you can do that, that's great. But you're basically speculating because you can't predict where the price is going to go. Now, there's some really good long-term historical evidence of where it probably will go, but who knows, right? I mean, 2008 happened or from 2005 to 2010, real estate really kind of plummeted and then it's come back. And in many cases, it's higher than it was back then. So who knows where things are going to go in the future? Maybe they keep going up or maybe we've hit the peak and it doesn't go any higher. But I know that I'm not smart enough to predict the future. So I don't try to predict appreciation. That's kind of how I look at it. I look at that as a bonus rather than a, you know, I don't tie that into our models. I just assume that if we get appreciation,
1: it's a bonus. Appreciation is like icing on the cake. You know, you will have it in time. You just don't know how much and when you will have that appreciation, but it's just nice to have when you do get it. And I think that's the problem back in 2004, 2005. The problem was a lot of people... Lost sight of the fact that an investment should actually have cash flow and an immediate rate of return. And everybody, including the taxi driver, became a so called investor, quote unquote, and they were buying for appreciation. And they just knew that if they were able to hold on to it long enough and then flip it, you know, it's the greater fool theory. The last person holding the bag is, you know, the sucker that takes the loss. But so many people flip their way to a fortune and there were literally tens of thousands of people, probably millions that were stuck holding assets that were now upside down. And that's a speculator's game. And that's the problem with banking on appreciation and ignoring cash flow and these other benefits.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I love the movie, The Big Short. I mean, it's just fantastic movie. And, you know, one of the scenes where they're going around doing their due diligence and they're driving around, I think it was Arizona. And they're talking to all these people, and not one of them had a clue. They're like, oh, yeah, it'll go up like 30%, and then I'll sell it. <laughs> and they're just making assumptions that this was just a given. And this is past the peak. This was like an 07. This wasn't even 05 when it kind of peaked. So I think it's hard. I think the nature of people is to speculate and to make dumb decisions at the top because they don't want to be left out of easy money. And that's the problem. You know, like the way I look at it is if I'm doing my calculations on real estate, if I get appreciation, I look at that as great. That's money I was not planning on and I'm happier for it. But, you know, I think it's not the kind of thing I would look forward to unless I'm doing some sort of creative deal making and value creation, like developing a house or fix and flip like that's a little different. But I mean, just buying and holding, I would never plan on appreciation.
1: Right, right. So one of my favorite things about real estate is leverage. The fact that you can borrow five to one and acquire income producing real estate. So let's talk about leverage.
0: Yeah, another great topic. So leverage is interesting. I think probably well, almost any real estate investor who's already investing understands leverage. You know, basically with real estate, it's one of the few assets that you can highly leverage. So if you think about most assets, right? Let's say you're buying a you know whatever you're buying a horse, right? And you're spending a hundred thousand for the horse. You're putting down a hundred thousand cash for that horse, right? But if you have a uh, a brokerage account, let's say you're buying Apple stock. And you want to use leverage, maybe they'll let you leverage it like two to one, right? So when you put down 100000 you can buy 200000 worth of Apple stock, right? Because there's some limits in what they allow you to do in your brokerage account. So there are some limits there. But with real estate, I mean, you can leverage yourself five to one. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it because you have a huge amount of leverage. You're buying a $100,000 property and put down $20,000. That is a huge amount of leverage. And that's one of the great benefits about real estate is that you can introduce that leverage into the equation. So you don't need to buy a hundred thousand dollar property. You know, you can buy it with a fraction of that amount. Now, if you look back in I think it was the late 70s, early eighties, when real estate and asset prices started to take off and inflation started to take off, you know, that was in part because people generally didn't use debt as much back then as they do now. Now you have to like, I mean, Marco, you're in California. I've seen some of the costs of some of the houses out there. I don't know how you buy one without using a mortgage unless you're independently wealthy. Like they're just for most average people, we don't have enough to pay cash for the houses that we want to buy in the areas that we can afford. So it's almost essential that people do that at some level, but one thing to point out is leverage is a two-edged sword. And I think this is a thing that scares the crap out of me. And I think the reason it scares me is because nobody's thinking about it. It's the whole black swan theory. The black swans only happen when people are not thinking about them and not aware of them. So here's my concern, or at least it was a few years ago. If you look at real estate, real estate, you're employing leverage. Leverage is a fantastic tool if prices are going up. Right. So you look back in 08 when leverage worked the inverse, right? You put down 5% in cash and, you know, the real estate goes down 20%. Well, you're upside down and you pretty much have to give back the keys because you're negative equity. So that's the downside. The upside is you use leverage, you know, a hundred thousand dollar property goes up, let's say 10%, right? And you put down 20,000, you just made 50% return. Leverage is great, but think about it in the reverse. And here's the thing that scares me. So look at Japan. So Japan has been in deflation for the past, what, 30 years? And real estate has been going down for 30 years, just like all the rest of their prices because they're in deflation. So that is a case where leverage is going to kill you. Because if it goes down 5% and you have 20000 down, you just lost 25% of your money. And at some point, you're underwater. So that's a case where you don't want to use leverage. The real challenge is, and this gets into cash flow as well, is I mean, inflation is highly tied to real estate. I mean, it's really, really closely correlated. But that also applies to cash flow and rents. So in Japan, asset prices are declining, let's say four or five percent a year, let's say, but rents are also going down in a similar amount. So your expectation that we have as a country anybody alive's really only seen inflation with real estate and 2008 a little different because that was, you know, a market crash, but I mean sustained inflation versus sustained deflation. Like Japan has sustained deflation. It's basically what we've had in reverse. So it, it's the other edge of the sword where going down, it just kills you. So it's really important to understand the dynamics. I mean, a few years ago I was really worried about this, but, Now, a lot less so because inflation is starting to perk its head, so I'm less worried. But I think it's an assumption that we challenge that most people aren't even thinking about. And if you really realize it, then it could, you know, it's dangerous. You just need to be aware of what you're doing, I think, is the lesson I'm trying to say.
1: Friends, because we went real long with this interview, in fact, it was over an hour, I'm going to stop it here and turn this into a two-part interview. And so we'll continue this on the next episode. So I apologize for that, but sometimes you just don't want to cut your guests off when they're giving you so much great content. So this will be part one, and we're going to continue this with part two next week. So if uh, you're listening to this late, you'll probably have these back-to-back for yourself right now. So that's it for now. We will see you next week.